Welcome to All Write in Sin City, a podcast about writers and writing in the Windsor, Detroit region. Your podcasters today are Irene Moore Davis, author, educator, and local historian, Sarah Jarvis, former bookseller, publishing rep, and literary festival chair, and me, Kim Conklin, Windsor based writer and filmmaker. This recording takes place in our own homes in the era of safe physical distancing. Our featured guest today is Natalie Zena Walshots. Natalie, originally from Essex County, is a writer and game designer whose work includes live action role playing game LARP scripts, heavy metal music journalism, video game lore, and weirder things classified as interactive experiences. Her writing on the interactive adventure, The Aluminum Cat, won an Indie Cat Award or Indiecade Award, and her poetic exploration of the notes engine in Bloodborne was featured in Kotaku and First Person Scholar. She's also an accomplished poet, publishing Thumbscrews, which won the Robert Croce Award for Innovative Poetry, and Doom, Love Poems for Supervillains. Natalie sits on the board of Dames Making Games, a space for queer and gender marginalized people to create games freely and where she hosts interactive narrative workshops. Her first novel, Henched, with the William Morrow imprint of HarperCollins Canada, about a young office temp who discovers the dark side of working for superheroes and supervillains, will be released in September 2020. And it's already garnered several star reviews and accolades, including the publisher's weekly Writer to Watch, Amazon's top September science fiction fantasy pick, and Apple Books' best books of September. Welcome, Natalie. Thank you so, so much for having me. I super appreciate it. We happen to have an idea as one of us met you as a very young poet, but when did you (laughs) first know that you wanted to be a writer? Um, I don't think I ever didn't know I wanted to be a writer, to be perfectly honest. Um, I, I remember my parents still have a lot of, uh, like construction paper projects that are folded over and stapled along one end with, um, writing in them that, you know, predates my ability to form words. Uh, so I, I, I feel like this has been (laughs) something that has, uh, always been a part of me in the way that I have expressed myself. So I, it, it's, I can't say that there was a, um, a single illuminating point or, or epiphany that it's, it's always been something that I have done. Writing for video games is something that I doubt any of our other guests have ever done. What kind <laughs> of process is that? It must be very collaborative. It's often very collaborative. Um, you can come into the process um, at many different stages. So sometimes the game is functionally done um, and you are looking at, um, you know, level design or, or, and mechanics that already exist and trying to put the story together based on, you know, a, a fairly fully realized world or at least set of mechanics. Um, at other points, you can come in extremely early and have a hand in shaping all of that. So you're developing like, what, what does this, 
world look like? What kinds of mechanics are going to be necessary in order to tell the story that I want to do? Um, but it is it is a deeply collaborative process. Certainly, you're you know you you're working with level designers. You're um, you know you're you're working with programmers. There you know you're working with artists, concept artists, and as well as like um, people who are making like the in-game models. And and all of it requires a lot of communication um, between all of you. Uh, of course, this is a larger game. You can also make a video game literally by yourself if you would like. Um, that is something a lot of people do. It's something that I've done as well, which is a much more um, obviously solitary experience. But anytime you're working with a game company um, or you know on any kind of team at all, um, you're you're essentially building the story together. Are you still writing poetry? And if so, what kind of poetry are you working on right now? <laughs> uh, I do still write poetry. Um, I haven't shown anyone any of it for a considerable period of time. Um, not out of disliking it, just out of it's, it's hasn't been the mode that I've been publicly working in, uh, working in for some time. I'm not sure how to describe it. I spent a, a long time on a project that was kind of synthesizing um, heavy metal music and like heavy metals in the like alchemical metallurgical sense um, and kind of working on those two very disparate vocabularies and working them together. That's probably the most recent, aside from the, the like video game in game engine projects that I've done. Um, you know, the, the bio mentioned Bloodborne where you can leave, uh, you can leave notes to other players, but only using a set set of like words and, and grammatical constructs. So it's sort of like options you're choosing between. And uh, so that was like a, a work of extreme constraint. Like what can I do within this like very foreshortened vocabulary and, and very limited structures. So I'm, I'm very interested in that, that kind of thing and sort of like what art, what pre-existing artificial structures are there out there that I can kind of latch onto and do something like that. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, that's primarily what I've been doing and, and interested in, but there hasn't been um, anything I've felt like, oh, I need to put this out in the world in a little while. So how did you find the process of adapting to writing fiction from your music journalism and criticism and work on video games? Um, I, I feel like those are each completely different experiences, like, like utterly, utterly different experiences. Um, the more time I spent writing fiction, the more I realized that um, nonfiction is so structurally different on like a, a, a very intimate writing kind of level um, that uh, I really had to kind of like go back several steps in my like, how do I do this? You know, I, I obviously like I can lean on a lot of the skills I developed as a journalist or, um, you know, a lot of the skills prior to that, that I developed, you know, writing academic prose or whatever. Um, but there is definitely a certain point when it comes to um, story structure and storytelling and, you know, just sort of like what makes enjoyable, uh, like an enjoyable novel is a very, very different thing than what makes like a good personal essay. So um, 
it was it was very much a, a kind of like going back to the drawing board and thinking very seriously about like what what do I like to read what are what are the um, qualities of my favorite books what you know what do they share what is it about those reading experiences that feel good and how can I translate that into what I want to do is the editorial process quite different entirely different yeah absolutely um, I mean it it's on its basic level, like you're giving your work to somebody, they're giving you feedback, you're taking those changes, you know, how, whatever. Um, with the novel, it was uh, much more, everything was a suggestion. So, you know, if, if I've certainly worked with um, any, any editor I've worked with, uh, which is not to say they've been very prescriptive, but um, in a nonfiction setting, it hasn't really been a conversation. It's like, these are the changes I need to see, right? And you might push back on that for sure. And like, that's definitely a thing, but it's much more like do, okay, this is what I think needs to happen to this piece. Like a thousand words need to be cut. That's just kind of like a fact of life or, or whatever. Like, this is what I need to see. Um, whereas with the novel, at least, at least my experience with my editor, um, David Pomerico, uh, it was much more like all of these are suggestions. Like I have read this thing and this is what I think. And this is like what I think will help bring it to its best possible self. And basically every time he was correct, there were like a few small things where I'm like, mm, I don't know about that. But like often, even in those moments, he ended up being right. Uh, but you know, he, I, there was all the space in the world for me to, agree or disagree or adapt or push back or, you know, do something that he suggested just maybe not in the way that he expected. Um, and it felt much more like I could kind of do whatever I wanted with those suggestions. And even at the copy editing level, you know, I got, I've never been a part of copy editing after a certain point, you know, like, but I got to like, do you want this period here? <laughs> like level, have, have that kind of like control and impact. And sometimes I didn't want that period there, even if it was technically correct. So being able to kind of like have that, have all of that editing be a conversation was really, really lovely. Many of our listeners are aspiring writers. Can you share a bit of how you connected with your publisher? Sure. Um, my, my experience is not typical, definitely. Um, I have an agent, a, a super wonderful guy um, named Ron Eckel, who works for Cook McDermott. Um, I've, had, I've had a relationship with him for years. Uh, so when I was finished the manuscript, or finished the manuscript, right? It went through like <laughs> four drafts after this. But when I had uh, the manuscript in a state where I felt like it might be a book at some point, you know, it read, it read completely enough. I, uh, I sent it on to him. He and I, and actually a couple other people on his team too had a, uh, we went through an editing process where I got feedback and made changes and, you know, got it in a state where we were comfortable, um, with him taking it to market. And then he brought it to several publishers he thought might be interested, you know, a few of them were, we had, I had several in-depth conversations with 
prospective editors um, on the phone. And then um, my agent set a closing date, which was sort of the like, okay, you've had some time, you know, you've talked to Natalie, you've had some time with the book. If you want to make a bid, it needs to be in by this day. A couple of publishers made offers. We talked about them um, and I ultimately accepted the William Morrow offer, which is, you know, head and shoulders above everything else. And, and you know, super, they were obviously super enthusiastic and I felt the, the greatest connection to the editor, um, David, who I'd spoken to. Like I felt we were very much on the same page and on the same wavelength and he understood what I was, you know, what I wanted to do with the book so much. And then, yeah, that's, that's kind of the, that's the story there. You know, there are, there are of course several steps before that, you know, like I, I started working on the manuscript entirely, like, um, just because it was a thing I wanted to do years before, I kind of picked away at it and then left it for a while and then picked away at it. Um, and, you know, my relationship with my agent um, was something that began when he saw me on Twitter like li like literally he started following my Twitter feed uh, and thought I was funny and asked if I wanted to meet with him and I did and you know we went out to lunch a couple of times and signed a contract um, and he was he's sort of I've, somebody who's been in my corner and been super supportive for years um, while we looked for a project to work on together and very happily like Hench ended up being the manuscript that was the best fit that he then wanted to take. So that's, it's a, it's a, was definitely a very long and circuitous process. And, you know, was something that involved a, a great deal of luck and a, a lot of people being like in my corner and being super supportive of me and, and helping a lot. So yeah, I'm very, very lucky in terms of how all that went. Very lucky. Wow, you got an agent on Twitter. That is a different yeah. kind of story. Yeah. Got an agent on Twitter. Cool. Like, who does that happen to? <laughs> yeah, I guess. Like, completely. Yeah, that is, that is not. <laughs> Whenever anybody asks me, like, oh, hey, you know, I'm thinking of, like, querying. How, like, will you look at my query letter? I'm like, I'm the least useful person in the entire world to ask this question. Like, I've, I've never done that. I don't know. Yeah, we, we like really hit it off. And, you know, he, he liked what I was doing with my, with my nonfiction at that point. And, you know, we, we initially thought like, oh, well, you know, there's got to be like a book of, um, like a book length nonfiction project we can work on somehow. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I'm, it's like, it's one of those, like, how do you do this? I'm like, literally, I don't know. I'm sorry. I can't be more helpful um yeah it's that's why I say I'm lucky I'm like but it doesn't happen typically that way well one of the many intriguing aspects uh is your idea of bringing together sort of that ordinary office worker world mm -hmm. and the supernatural aspects of the bosses where did you get the idea to use a spreadsheet as a literary device we're really intrigued by that oh yeah sure um so I spent a lot of time trying to figure out like what like how to sort of like quantify and explain this data right which which you know is is all accurate by the way all the numbers in the books book uh 
is is real. They are they are true. They are based on um, for real these calculations that you know have have been uh, most most of the um, the scale in the book has been developed by uh, a researcher named Elon Noy. He's quoted in in the novel. He's a real guy, a real human being working uh, in New Zealand uh, on disasters like natural natural disasters and and how communities recover from them and he developed you know a sort of scale that you can measure what the what the personal and economic impact of a natural disaster is on a community and those equations are what i used so in a very real way like you know that's that's kind of a a bit of a superpower and it's in its own right. Um, so it was, you know, that that aspect of it was extremely important to me that I wanted it to be accurate uh, and I wanted it to be kind of correct. And um, I built those spreadsheets, certainly with the help of my partner in, in, in a lot of ways. Um, he's, he's much better at the kind of like detailed construction than I am, but we built those spreadsheets and they work. Uh, so I, I have them and I, I, it's kind of like, it's a magical enough process to kind of be able to put in like, okay, this is, you know, this is the destruction that was wrought in this particular scenario and you put it in and then you get a calculation of like, and this is what the human life year cost is at the end of that. Like that sort of felt like magic. And so it was, you know, important for me to explain enough of that in the book that it, it felt real because it was real. And, you know, it's, it's something that, uh, that I can now talk about fairly endlessly. It's like, well, <laughs> I can indeed calculate, you know, what the, what the impact Superman had on this community is like, just tell me what happened and I can give you the numbers. So yeah, it was, it was because that was how I arrived at those conclusions. Like Anna's conclusions are real. that superheroes would be bad for communities. They are measurably bad and measurably worse. And because she could measure them, you know, uh, or because I could me measure them rather in real life, it was important that she could measure them in, in her experience of real life. So another thing that you touch on is that at her new employer, Anna, your heroine benefits from unique kinds of things like orientation to resistance to torture. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. <laughs> what, what inspired you to bring that kind of an element to the mundane? Oh, well, uh, I mean, Every job, like you get weird training, you know, like literally every job that you have, you know, whether that's, um, you know, like if you're working in an environment where you have to like handle hazardous materials, like in addition to being taught how to do that, it's like, well, if somebody is exposed to this, what do you do? Here's how you use an eye wash station. Here's how you do that. You know, even something as simple as, you know, first aid training. It's like, if you, it, it's something we, that a lot of people go through and is, is definitely sort of made to be as like, um, as untraumatic as possible when you're going through the training but at the same time it's preparing you for a situation in which if someone is literally dying in front of you what can you possibly do um so i i i have always found all of those experiences like profoundly weird you know and i i i've i've 
it's my my I've never kind of become dull to that like oh this is just like I'm just going through my orientation this is what you know this is what we're doing it's like actually like this is strange <laughs> I just want to like I've, I've that that weirdness is sort of never worn off for me um and so I wanted to kind of like put some of that into the book in that in that like you know, every, most people are not rattled by the super strange orientations that they have to go through because they wouldn't be because we're not, right, for, for the most part. Um, also, resistance to interrogation training is something that is very real and something that a lot of people go through in a, in a lot of um, jobs that you would not necessarily expect that you would, but a lot of jobs that have, say, any kind of secret clearance or, you know, you're handling sensitive information in any way will offer courses like this. And it's, uh, it, it's, it's available to a wide a range of people, uh, wider than you might expect. And again, like when you think about it, it's like medium horrible at least. Um, but it, it is in like, these are things that exist in the real world that lots of people have access to and lots of people would have experienced in a work setting and uh and it was something that made a lot of sense that somebody like anna would definitely have gone through as as part of preparation for her job in your book you also celebrate the le the strength of all gender sexual and ethnic identities in much of your work and without spoilers at one point your female protagonist who has been underemployed and disenfranchised is suddenly thrust into a huge leadership role that she doesn't expect but it's accepted by the other characters mm -hmm. do you feel like you're breaking ground in contemporary fiction with this i don't know breaking ground like i think i i, I don't think that it's like necessarily a, a brand new or revolutionary idea but the uh the fact that Anna is respected is was super important to me. Um, I didn't necessarily like want to dramatize a lot of situations in which she wouldn't be once she kind of arrived in the place where she was supposed to be. You know, like there, I, I didn't want like the characters that surround her or the colleagues that surround her kind of later in the book um, are people who have a profound respect for her and her abilities right out of the gate. And it was very important for me to preserve that. You know, it was something that I, I talked through a lot with uh, with my editor and, and definitely with my partner, which is, um, you know, they everybody should believe her like her her friends and her colleagues believe her. So the the struggle of the book was not like, how do I get everybody to believe me or believe in me? Because I have read that story a lot and that's a very important story and that's a super important narrative but it was not the one I wanted to tell. The story I wanted to tell is like, well, what happens if you are believed and you are supported and you know, you are, you do have, you're sort of personally and professionally surrounded by people who are not questioning that kind of the leadership and the authority that you have all of the time. Like what would that feel like? And what would that look like? Because, uh, you know, I think, I think there are, there are a lot of great and very important narratives that do that. It just was not the narrative that, you know, that I wanted to, that I personally wanted to explore, you know, in this way and at this time, you know, the, that, uh, that, that support and that like collegiality was really, really important to me as well. Like I wanted, so the diversity in the novel 
is something that was critical to me because I wanted in a lot of ways this to reflect like what my community looks like. Like I am surrounded by people who are as diverse as the people in the book are, you know, there, there's sort of that Tumblr joke. That's like, most people are like, Oh, there's two gay characters in this cast. Like that doesn't make any sense. Cause not that many people are gay. Me. I haven't seen a straight person in three days. Like that's me. Like the second that that's sort of is my situation. Like I'm, I'm, and you know, like the, my, my friends and my colleagues and you know, the, the communities in which I move are incredibly like, you know, racially and ethnically diverse and, you know, are, are, you know, have people from a range of like genders and, and, and presentations and sexualities. Um, and it was important that this book look like my community, like this, this book looks like the people I am surrounded by for, you know, for a lot of ways and, and for a lot of reasons. But I also didn't want any of those identities to be the primary source of conflict in the book. Because I, I think it's really important that we have stories that are not like, and here is why it's super hard to be queer. We have so many of them. They're really great. They're really important. That's not what I wanted to do. Like I, I wanted to present a world in which, um, not in which those conflicts didn't exist, but it, uh, the the narrative that I was telling was not about those conflicts. It was about other kinds of conflicts that, you know, might brush against them or might be influenced by them at, you know, one point or another, like Anna definitely encounters people who are super sexist or misogynist at, at points in the book. That's just not the primary source of conflict. Right. Um, you know, there, there are, there are definitely like, you know, there, Anna comes into conflict with her best friend in part because in a few ways, she's kind of a clueless white lady and doesn't really understand the like risk she's putting her black friend in, which makes her super uncomfortable with a lot of things that, ha that happen around her and happen in the book. And Anna can't figure it out. Like she doesn't realize what she's doing and why she's making her best friend really uncomfortable. So, which again is like, that's a significant conflict in the book. And their, you know, their friendship is about a lot of other things other than that. But, uh, but again, it's not like the core source of the novel's conflict you know, I, I, I think it's important that we, we see characters not having to deal with that as much as we see them having to deal with that. And we, we, I think it's important that we like what we have examples of like, what does a story look like and what does a narrative look like if, you know, bigotry is not always the number one source of, of conflict or antagonism, which isn't to say it kind of isn't like, in the background of, of the book either, but, you know, in, in specific kind of ways. I realize that was a very long and circuitous answer, and I thank That's you for <laughs> entertaining me on it. We commend you for using circuitous twice in one interview. Oh, I mean, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to put you on the spot now with this question. We want you to be Ooh. honest. 
Okay. Did the experience of growing up in deepest, darkest Western Essex County imbue you with a keen appreciation of the Gothic and surreal? I mean, there's only one right answer. Absolutely. Yes. Like Essex County is a hell mouth. Obviously, <laughs> like, obviously I've, I've said this a lot. Like it is the weirdest place in the world. One of my great joys is like taking my friends to Essex County for the first time and being like, let me show you Calasantes. <laughs> it's kind of a greenhouse and also kind of a haunted house. And also there's brunch there. Uh, you can, you'll, you can get a, uh, we'll get a cactus and then ride a very small roller coaster and bring home some donuts. And uh, at Christmas, it's especially weird. Also, you'll get lost at least five times. Like having those experiences did not feel weird when I was a little kid and now feel entirely very weird coming back. Um, also being able to say like, this is Boblo Island. You may remember it from every urban exploration slash like haunted amusement park story about Ontario that you've ever heard. I spent most of my childhood there. You know, th there's, there's so much, like there's so much like rich, deep weirdness in Essex County that uh, you don't necessarily appreciate when you were submerged in it growing up, but that is definitely there and definitely present. And, and I, I think of course had a huge impact on me. So do you have a secret supervillain alias yourself? And, and who might that be? <laughs> uh, I don't, I don't have a, uh, it's not an alias. Like I've, I've been calling myself a supervillain for a very long time. If you, that's my one word bio on just about every, you know, like profile page and like piece of social media. If I can only have like a very short one, I'm a supervillain. It's been how I identify. Um, so yeah, I, I don't much in the way that secret identities aren't super a thing in the novel. Like they kind of are, but they kind of aren't. There's not a, a lot of separation between like public outward facing me and, and me behind closed doors like the unfortunately the um kind of like trash goblin ex exterior that everyone sees on social media is an accurate reflection of my own life uh it's not, it's not an act Un unfortunately i'm really like this so yeah it, it's i'm i'm kind of a supervillain just without without an alter ego it's just one terrible unified ego you own it i own yeah call <laughs> me Sorry, everyone. Have you had time to think about your next project? Are you working on something new now? I am. Um, I've, I'm very seriously entertaining um, and, in fact, starting to work towards a sequel. Um, a lot of people have expressed an interest in that. You know, it's, there's cer nothing is certain. What is certain in this world anymore? And it's, you know, it, it's definitely not something that is guaranteed, but it's, you know, I, I feel like there's a lot of rich ground in this universe. There's a lot of great world building. You know, the, the narrative is kind of ends up in a place where like this story has definitely concluded, but there are a lot yeah. of doors that remain open. And, and I'm very interested in, in walking through them. I'm also interested in writing um, parallel stories, you know, in, in this universe. At the same time, I'm, uh, I'm working on a fictional true crime podcast, which is, <laughs> which I'm, I'm hesitant to give the name out of because it, it, at this point is the, the true part of the true crime is, is still definitely 
present in the narrative, um, but that is eventually going to take a turn that I'm pretty excited about. And there's, uh, there is also a, um, I'm working on the, some narrative and world building for a video game called the Aurora Report that Peculiar Path is going to be putting out. So there's a couple of, of things I'm, I'm part-time working on. Um, that that doesn't include like I'm I'm also trying to build a new RPG system with a friend of mine and I'm uh, I'm in the remote realities residency right now with uh, with you know my my friend and colleague Max Lander um, and we're we're trying to develop a um, like a asynchronous play game that sort of mimics like um, mail chess. You know where where you like ma- mail your moves back and forth to each other and and plot them out on the board. Uh, we're trying to figure out like what would an RPG experience online that mimics the feel of this look like, where you're not you're not playing at the same time, but you're exchanging something back and forth with each other. So we're working on that too. So uh, I don't I don't like downtime very much. <laughs> so lots of lots of things, lots of things. Short answer. Wow. Well, we'd like to invite you to read some of your work for us. Would you like to sure? Abs- sure thing. So, I just got my author copy. I'm very excited. Woo-hoo. It is. It is beautiful. <laughs> I'm very very pumped. Uh, so early on, Anna gets a job with someone called the Electric Eel. And she's very excited about it because, you know, she's been working a lot of remote and terrible jobs and, and she hasn't had a, uh, you know, a lot of security. And this, despite being another terrible job, does seem like it might be okay. Um, so this is one of her first, as a, a young henchwoman, in-office experiences working, working for a supervillain. A hand curled around the edge of my monitor, startling me. The nails were buffed, and a huge turquoise ring adorned the middle finger. I took a breath and tried to make my face as serene and welcoming as I could, despite having been shaken out of deep hack mode. Hey, Anna, the electric eel said, too slowly. Hi! I raised my eyes, and he smiled down at me, sculpted brows arched high over his sunglasses. I hoped that acknowledgement was enough and let my eyes wander back to my monitor. I was not in the mood for a lecture about our culture's fear of intimacy, but I also didn't want to encourage him. How are you? He let go of my monitor and flexed that hand. I've been really missing the coast lately. I think I'm going to have to head out west soon, get a little beach time in. My partner and I have been talking about opening up our relationship. It's going really well. He sat down on the edge of my desk and I met his eyes again, resigning myself to the fact I wasn't going to be able to get rid of him that quickly. His mouth, surrounded by a perfect black goatee, became serious. But Anna, how are you? Oh, I'm well. You know, I get quite buried in my work. Mm. He steepled his fingers and pressed his hands to his mouth. Is anything bothering you lately? That seemed loaded. I could suddenly smell the sharp cucumber and citrus of my deodorant as I started to sweat. Uh, Nothing immediately comes to mind. I knew I sounded too chipper, but I couldn't stop myself. He sighed. Anna, has anyone been bothering you? I was taken aback. Look, I'm really sorry that my ex called looking for me. I promise it will not happen again. I don't 
think we're communicating, he said mournfully. I imagined lighting him on fire with my mind. This is about someone in the office. Oh. Is this about the knife fish's personal assistant? Yes, Jessica. I feel like we resolved the matter. She filed a grievance yesterday, Anna. Oh, I can understand why she would do that. And you don't feel like that should be addressed? I considered my words tilting my chin up. If she felt the need to file a report, I respect that decision. I do feel like I got my message across to her. You hid her phone in a spooky pumpkin. I glanced over to Jessica, sitting a few desks away, hunt and peck typing on her phone's screen. She had a habit of leaving that phone unattended on her desk, sometimes for hours, with the ringer on. After listening to it blare a few bars of some awful pop song over and over for weeks, I'd taken matters into my own hands. There was a plastic pumpkin looming on top of a filing cabinet in one corner of the office, a forgotten Halloween decoration. One afternoon, I picked up her still ringing phone and hidden it inside. The pumpkin distorted the sound just enough that it had taken her until the following afternoon to find her phone. I sent June updates via chat for the next day and a half while Jessica searched the office with a co-worker's borrowed phone, head cocked to one sign, listening for the ringtone like a bird watcher straining to hear the call of a rare specimen. I couldn't help but smile. I did indeed, yes. The electric eel seemed confused. Do you see an issue with anything that happened? Well, she hasn't left her ringtone on again. I see. He took off his sunglasses and gave me a long, grave look. I understand that you were frustrated. So how about you and Jessica, of course, take a conflict resolution workshop just to clear the air, and then we can drop the grievance. I looked over at Jessica. She was glaring at me now. I smiled and waved, and she dropped her eyes back to her phone, her lips pinched. No, thank you. I think the problem has been solved. Then you'll have to be written up. You seemed at a loss. Oh, that's fine. I'll have two more incidents before I'll have to talk to HR about it formally. And I don't expect to need that. Hmm. Well, okay, Anna, if those are the consequences you're comfortable with. He stood up and brushed off his trousers, sighing. I gave him a genuine smile. It only seems fair. <laughs> Thank you for indulging me in that. That was really fun. I love the electric eel. He's terrible. <laughs> he's, he's such a terrible person. Uh, and he's, he's modeled after a couple of very particular bosses that I've had in my life. And it gives me great joy to see him out in the world where other people can appreciate his unique horribleness. <laughs> Will you be sending this book to them? Oh, that's a great question. I'm not sure if they've been indicted or not, so that might be a little <laughs> tricky. <laughs> that would be great. I totally should. Yes. The, the real boss behavior is recognizable. In <laughs> yes. No. I think so. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. Okay, Nat again, Natalie Zena Walshot's new book, Hench, will be out very soon. Grab your copy. I think it's September 22nd and super soon. Thanks for joining us. Look for more episodes of All Right in Sin City wherever you listen to podcasts. Or check out our website, allrightinsincity.com. For information and announcements of new podcasts, sign up to our email list or follow us on Facebook and Twitter.